Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from a cloudy and cool Macomb, Illinois, on this May the 4th, be with all of you. Um, it's it's a little bit chilly here this uh, as we're entering from spring. We're getting to that bridge of summer, uh, and we have a fantastic show for you folks. It's going to be chocked full of information about snakes. That's right. It's going to be lots of great information. We're going to be talking with Dr. John Van Eck, uh, who is a wildlife biologist, herpetologist. Uh, and so he's going to be joining us with the show uh, here in just a second. Uh, but before we get to John, let us introduce our co-host with us every single week. We are joined by local foods educator, Katie Parker. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How's it going? I no complaints here. But you know, I got to say, when when life wants to get you going, it gets you going. It's like everything falls at once. And I feel like with this spring, post, not really post-COVID, but things are loosening up a little bit. It's like, man, we're really hitting the ground running. It feels like. Right. If you're not ready to go, you better be. I know it. Oh yeah. You got to be ready to just hit that Mm -hmm. road. So how are things in Adams County? Oh, things are going well. Uh, Got some rain yesterday, which is nice. Settle some dust, but yeah, things are going well here. Definitely. Yep. And I know someone who, uh, you know, who loves to hit the ground running and he doesn't stop, uh, you know, so it's Ken Johnson, horticulture educator in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. How are you? Oh, you know us. We're doing good. Are are you, (laughs) what are you doing though? It looks like you're about to enter light speed. I am. It's Star Wars day, so, and to break out the Star Wars background. Well, Yes. No, we all, I'm wearing my Star Wars socks, so I have clone troopers on my socks right now. I know, Katie. Do you ha- are, are you celebrating or partaking on May May the Fourth? Oh, I always celebrate, but I've never watched a Star Wars movie in my life. <laughs> <laughs> we we need to change this before uh, next May the Fourth. Yes, yes. Need to get you up to speed. There you there go. You go. Well, another thing, Katie, tell me if you partake in this, uh, do you have a fondness for snakes? Absolutely not. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I have a respect for them, but I do not like it when they just pop up when I'm bending down to like pull a weed or something. And it's like, oh, there's a snake. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can jump really high then. Uh, but Ken, how, how's your attitude towards snakes? They don't bother me. Though I'm, a, I'm an insect person, so maybe I just like creepy crawly stuff. <laughs> I think you do. <laughs> <laughs> it goes with the territory. <laughs> well, I am happy to introduce our special guest for today. Um, so we have wildlife biologists uh, with a specialty, I'd say, in herpetology. We have Dr. John Van Eck with us on the show today to talk about snakes. So, uh, John, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, John, I just to kind of kick off things here uh, off the bat, you know, I, I'm curious if you are interested in um, wildlife biology, I'd say in general, but, you know, we have you here to talk about snakes today. Uh, curious, as, as a kid, was that something that like you were always like, okay with snakes, reptiles, kind of like Ken, the creepy crawlies? Uh, yeah, right from the right from the start, pretty much to my parents' chagrin. Uh <laughs> Uh, you know, I feel like wildlife biologists either come from like outdoorsy families or like the complete opposite. Um, mm-hmm. And I was the total outlier in my family and uh, the only one who really liked uh, creepy crawly things and getting outside. And I grew up in the suburbs of New York City. Uh, and so any chance I could go outside, 
I took that opportunity, but we didn't really have that many opportunities. Um, yeah. so, uh, yeah, total outlier for my family, really the only one to this day. I think they just tolerate me. <laughs> so I, well, well, how is that with you, Ken, when you go to your family gatherings and, and you, do you like show them pictures of all the insects that you've collected is, you know, is that yeah. kind of how you are too? I get a lot of eye rolling. Yeah. Well, you're from Chicago <laughs> land ish, right? Yeah. An urban area. Yeah, I got lots of eye rolls. And mm-hmm. My my wife has learned to <clears throat> accept and tolerate insects in the freezer and and all that fun stuff. So, <laughs> well, very good. Well, but John, I mean, wildlife biology. I mean, that that covers a, a huge spectrum. Um, so, tell me a little bit. I mean, we're talking about snakes today, but do you have a favorite um, a part of that 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 diverse field that you study? Like, where where would you find if I would say? Uh, looking for you and you're out doing field work, where would I find you most likely? Oh, you know, that's that stuff these days, probably out uh, kind of in an urban forest preserve in the Chicago area. Um, I, so I guess my specialty now is kind of urban ecology. Um, um, so how wildlife are making their living in and around human dominated areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's necessarily where any wildlife biologist wanted to, to end up right, we all wanted to be in Alaska or South America or the Everglades, um, but sometimes you you follow uh, opportunities, uh, mm-hmm. and and I kind of you know growing up in the in the suburbs where wildlife was scarce, um, I I think I have a greater appreciation for those critters that are able to survive or are just barely holding on and need our help in those urban areas. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if though, if I had a place where I'd love to be in, in Illinois at any time looking for things, it would be down at LaRue Pine Hills in, uh, in Shawnee National Forest. Um, that, that natural area is commonly known as Snake Road, um, and that's just, that's just a gem of, uh, of the National Forest System. Really an amazing yeah. area. Uh, it, it's beautiful. I, Chris uh, Benda, who's a the botanist down in that neck of the woods, he's He's taken us on a few excursions and um, the throughout Southern Illinois and, and I don't know, just the, the, from a botanical standpoint, the, the, the plants down there that you can find some very rare orchids, some just really interesting plant material. And then you look at the, the animals, the, the wildlife out there too. And it's just like, wow, I, I think it was at the, it might've been the only place I've seen. A, I think it was a copperhead snake, I think was down in that neck of the woods. So. Uh, yeah, that I mean, that's where they're most certainly most common. Um, mm-hmm. Most all, most of the venomous snakes in Illinois, there's only four species out of about 40 total species of snakes in Illinois. Um, but uh, three of the four are kind of most common down in the Shawnee National Forest area or, you know, southern Illinois, depending on how you define that right south of whatever certainly. highway. Uh, I like to think of it as South Carbondale, really, but (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot of people in Southern (laughs) Illinois said, oh, you're not in Southern Illinois until you get South of Carbondale. Yeah. (laughs) So I, okay. So I'm curious here um, now that we're, we're bridging into the topic of, of snakes. um, You heard Katie and I, we're not really, we, we were, I I react fearfully when I see a snake, Uh, Katie, is is that the same kind of scream and run? Yes, yes, scream and run, <laughs> yes. Um, why? why, why are humans, it seems like so many people have a phobia of snakes. Is this something that, you know, we we're talking about insects and in shows past, like we just like learn that behavior from our parents or is this something deep within our brains that we just have this built-in fear of snakes? Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a really great question um, that herpetologists are always kind of struggling with. 
Uh, and I think it's a little bit of both. Um, there's, there's definitely debate in the literature on either side and the anthropologists get in there too. And the psychologists get in there. Um, so, I mean, our ancient ancestors evolved in places where there are a lot of dangerous snakes. Um, and there, there are places in the world today where, you know, snake bite is, is a serious, almost, um, you know, epidemic where there are hundreds of thousands of people that are killed by snakes in, in developing regions of the world these days. Um, that's just simply not something that we have to deal with in the United States. It's kind of a, one of those issues of relative risk or risk perception. Um, but, you know, so it would make sense if we think back that we would have this innate fear of snakes, primates, a lot of primates, whether they're uh, apes or monkeys, they, they seem to show this natural fear of snake-like creatures. Um, and certainly our ancient ancestors would have just would have, you know, encountered venomous snakes, but also the giant constrictor snakes mm. um, in in more wild places in the world. And and to this day, there are still some um, tribal people that that have a healthy fear of the large constrictors because they they're a threat where they live. Um, and so maybe there's this kind of innate innate fear that makes sense from an evolutionary per perspective. Um, but at the same time, those of us who have done a lot of education programs with snakes know that little kids, you go to kindergarten classrooms, first grade, preschool, kids love snakes, except for the kids whose parents are petrified of snakes. And those are the only ones. Uh, and then the older you get, you know, more and more of the kids up until high school, it could be 50, 60% that are, don't want anything to do with a snake. Whereas I take you to any kindergarten or first grade classroom and 80% of those kids want to, you know, touch the snake and mm -hmm. think it's so cool. Um, and I, I think there's a, a huge cultural component, um, you know, whether it's TV or movies or, or books, all of our culture just, or religion, right? They show this snake's bad or snake's dangerous or snake's gross. Um, and I think that's just a constant onslaught where maybe you're neutral or slightly below neutral when you're born. Um, but then you just go downhill from there, unless you have these positive experiences growing up or your brain is weird. Like, you know, most of our, uh, most of us herpetologists who we didn't, you know, my parents didn't like snakes. Um, but for whatever reason I, I rebelled. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I think, I think it's, um, there's a lot of interesting things to study in that regard, but not settled science. Okay. Well, well, darn. So I can't run away screaming, just saying it's my evolutionary biology. I can't, I can't do that yet. So, okay. Very good. I now, not, I, maybe I just need to be Katie, you and I, we just have to go hang out with more snakes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> I think I'd rather die. <laughs> I'm going to have nightmares for weeks after this show. <laughs> I always have nightmares when I see a snake outside. Same. Always do. Yeah. And it's always a snake crawling in my bed or yes, biting my legs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'll say it's the same thing with insects too. I take um, hissing cockroaches to, to classes and stuff and preschool, kindergarten kids are fine with it. And then you usually tell around that first, second grade, <clears throat> you start getting more kids become hesitant. So I'm glad it's just not me with the insects. And, has yeah, no, and, and sometimes it's the chaperones, right? So when I used to work at an education center and, uh, or a nature center, and, uh, you know, the kids are fine until they look over at their, their parent who decided to come on the field trip. And then they see their parent is, you know, all the way in the back of the side of the room, you know, with their defensive body language. And, <laughs> and then 
and then that, and then the kids start getting nervous. And so I always kind of ask the parents, you know, try to keep your emotions in check. And, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, maybe step out, go to the bathroom, get a drink of water. Cause we don't want to imbue that on our impressionable youth. <laughs> so speaking of, of snakes and stuff, you know, we, we encounter what types of stuff are we going to typically encounter outside here in Illinois? Yeah. So, um, we actually have a really great snake diversity in Illinois. There's about 40 species. I think it's 39. Um, but that always shifts depending on, uh, whether the taxonomists are lumpers and splitters, uh, or, you know, which species was found on what side of the Mississippi river and, and whether people argue that it should have been there or if it just drifted over or, you know, someone plopped it down. Um, so about 40 species, um, probably the most common two species people encounter are the common garter snake and, and the brown snake. Um, and these are both small, harmless species that are um, just at home in natural wild areas as they are kind of in um, exurban or urban or suburban developments. And so that's why those two species are pretty much the most common. Um, they also both eat earthworms, invasive earthworms or non-native earthworms, I guess. Um, and so I think that helps facilitate their uh, their survival in urban areas and people's gardens and backyards. So these, these are the species that people would commonly say, oh, it's a garden snake or a grass snake or, or something like that. So brown snake, um, which is Storaria DKI, or um, the common garter snake, which is Thamnophis sertalis. Uh, those are definitely the two species most people would encounter just by, by chance. Growing up, we'd often see water moccasins in our ponds. Uh, are they poisonous? Yeah, so can I ask where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in the country around Ursa, Illinois. Is that, where Where geographically is that? Uh, Western Illinois, so it's kind of like the belly of Illinois. Is that north or south of St. Louis? It is north of St. Louis. Okay, so I would say that uh, you certainly saw water snakes, but they probably okay. weren't water moccasins. Gotcha. Um, so this, this is kind of an interesting thing. So, you know, if you ask almost anyone, you know, they saw a water moccasin growing up or a cotton mouth or something. Um, but to herpetologists, you know, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but we're, we're like, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and there, there are different strategies for dealing with that conflict, right? Between what we think you saw and what you think you saw. Um, and, and the way I kind of think about it is that um, you know, you saw what, what you were saw and your elders and your, and your, the people you trust called it a water moccasin. And so you have no reason to think it wasn't a water moccasin. Um, and, um, and so it's just, it comes down to what people, you know, the common names that people give to different organisms. And I'm sure you have that botanically too, right? What someone calls something in their garden is not what someone else calls it in their garden, or especially if you cross different regions, um, and so what you probably saw were northern water snakes or midland water snakes. Um, and so the, the water moccasin, what a herpetologist would call, you know, either a cottonmouth uh, or that water moccasin, um, that's a very specific species that really only occurs in extreme southern Illinois um, up to maybe Williamson County, um, right along the edge of the Mississippi, those bluffs um, down in the cypress streams and things like that. It's a very... Uh, southern snake that reaches its northern extent in southern Illinois, kind of in that coastal plain area that, that peaks into Illinois um, down there. Um, but people across the country will tell you, whether they're in California, 
whether they're in uh, Vermont or Maine, they'll say they saw water moccasins. And that's just, that is what a lot of people call any snake that they see swimming in the water. Um, but the reality is that most, unless you live kind of in that southeastern coastal plain from uh, kind of Virginia Beach, south to Florida, and then across south of Tennessee, up through southern Illinois, and kind of a little further west and down into Texas, outside of that area, we, they just don't occur. Um, and um, But there are lots of species of water snakes, and water snakes can be a really common presence in a lot of bodies of water. And so uh, when I say water snake, I'm referring to this organism called Nerodia cipidon, or, uh, or some of the other species in the, ge in the genus Nerodia, whereas a cottonmouth or a water moccasin is what a, a, a herpetologist refers to that as Agchistrodon um, piscivorous, which basically means like a um, hooked tooth fish eater. <laughs> um, and, and the true water moccasin is indeed venomous um, and, and is something that no one should want to take a bite from. If you do, you'd want to go to the hospital right away. Um, but the northern water snake is just this common generalist species that occurs really throughout most of the uh, eastern and central United States. Um, and then there are southern species of water snakes. But, but yeah, you, you saw something. And I'm... I'm Culturally, it's a water moccasin, but maybe biologically, it's not necessarily a water moccasin, if that makes sense. From here on out, I will not call it a water moccasin. <laughs> uh, John, it sounds, your explanation there obviously indicates that you have had to talk with people in depth about this issue, because I grew up where Katie grew up also, and um, people will fight you when you're like, nah, it's not a water moccasin, and they're like, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> it's like, they, I mean, it, the belief is strong. That's right. all I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that's right. And so there are other herpetologists or, uh, you know, maybe um, people who are reptile and amphibian enthusiasts um, mm -hmm. who, who would argue right back and say, no, you're wrong. And then that just creates conflict. But I don't really see it that way, because if, if you were raised to believe that that snake that swims in the water is a water moccasin, then you mm -hmm. saw something and you saw a snake that swims in the water. It's just a matter of what we call it and then what biological attributes are are uh, relevant to that, you know, to that snake. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd rather help folks figure out what they saw and realize where miscommunication is happening than try to, you know, get into a, no, you're wrong. No, you're right. Kind of mm -hmm. back and forth. I don't think that's productive as satisfying as it can be if you're having a bad day and you just want to argue with someone, but. <laughs> so I was fishing once in the Hinkson Creek in Columbia, Missouri, and we waded into the Creek after about 15 minutes, I look around and I realize I'm surrounded by snakes. They were swimming upstream, uh, smaller ones and a few larger ones. I have not run as I have not run as fast as I have with waders on ever in my life before. So, um, but I was not in any risk or danger. But that, yeah, it was. You talk about water snakes, water moccasins. These were, I think, they're just like some black water snake. You know that they were black in color and yeah, just swimming. Yeah, going out for a swim. Yep. Yeah, and and so usually when when we're trying to help people figure out what snake they saw, that geography is is a huge. Snakes are snakes are not like coyotes. You know, it's not like you could radio collar a coyote in uh, in the suburbs of Chicago and then find it down in in Macomb, which is certainly mm -hmm. within the capabilities of a coyote or a coyote. Um, 
but you know, snakes are very specific in their geographic range. And so that's a huge part of making any identification because they are really variable when you look at them. Um, and, uh, you know, a picture alone is often not good enough to make a definitive ID. You can rule out a lot of species with, with a picture, um, mm -hmm. but making that definitive ID down to the species level often requires more information, especially geographic distribution or, you know, where the photo was taken. Yeah, definitely. Or where the anecdote occurred. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. I, well, I took a, I had a video with the snake in it and someone's like, well, what is that? So I contacted a few people and like one said, that's a black snake or a black rat snake. And I'm like, but it's not black. And I'm like, no, no, it, at that stage in its life, it's not. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so, I yep. mean, I, it's, it's like a plant. They, they change throughout the different life stages. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. But they could, yep. they said, but this is not 100% conclusive. I cannot identify this, you know, without like, a sample in my hand so yeah yeah absolutely usually you know um you can you get pretty close with you know no it's not harmful to humans or you know mm. it may be harmful to humans and so uh, but i think that goes a long way because most people aren't necessarily interested in exactly which of the 40 species of snakes that occur in illinois it is rather <laughs> they want to know you know is is it something that i need to be concerned about or can i go about my my day so we often see on wildlife shows um people handling snakes, uh, which they're crazy. But um, can we just do that with any wild snake that we see out outside? Um, I, I feel like that's a complicated question. So I, I would say if, if you're not 100% confident in knowing your venomous snakes versus your, your harmless snakes, um, then that's not something I would recommend at all. Um, and so really rather than, you know, people often ask, well, you know, how do I know if it's venomous or not? And, and I would say you, you don't because it, it takes practice and experience and there's no single diagnostic characteristic that will help you learn that. It's really, you have to look at a lot of different snakes and know their characteristics and biology and make an informed decision. Um, and, and I think a lot of folks are not in the position to do that, which is, you know, perfectly acceptable and reasonable. And so um, if you're not, 100% sure it's not a copperhead, a cottonmouth, or a rattlesnake, then, you know, admire it from a distance and maybe snap a picture and try to have it identified um, by an expert. Um, on the other hand, if you're in an area where you know there are no venomous snakes, um, you know, I would say, you know, maybe that's really good when we think about the na nature deficit disorder that we hear about so frequently. Um, I think there are very few herpetologists who didn't grow up catching garter snakes and, and picking up any snake they could find to, you know, the frustration of their parents. But, uh, and then there are others that say, no, we shouldn't do that. We should respect wildlife by leaving it alone and admiring it from a distance. And so I think that's also a valid perspective. Um, so I think it really depends. But in general, I would say, if you're, if you're asking whether or not the snake is venomous, you shouldn't be picking it up. <laughs> so Okay, so John, in that regard, um, I in West Central Illinois we have on Google Maps. I saw this. It's the is it the Eastern Masaga Preserve? I went and visited it. It's a cornfield, and I was very. I mean, am I a fan of snakes? No. Do I want there to be snake habitat? Yes. So how how common are venomous snakes in Illinois? Because I don't know if they're out inhabiting that cornfield. I mean, sure, there's mice and things like that out there, but like how common would it be for me to just go outside 
It, it, I'm sure you're right. It depends on geography. Am I stepping out of an, a suburban door, an urban door, or a rural door? But how common would it be for me to encounter a venomous snake? We kind of hit this before, but yeah, maybe we'll yeah, dive so, into it. I mean, if you're in the northern half of Illinois, you have almost no chance of encountering a venomous snake. Um, historically, there was this species called the Massasauga rattlesnake, it's a, or a mm -hmm. swamp rattler or prairie rattler, um, depending on where you are, what the common names are. Um, and that species would have even been found in the Chicago area. Um, they basically lived in the, the wet prairies. But we know that 99% of our prairies are, are gone in yeah. Illinois. And to this day, um, you can only find the, the Massasauga in uh, a single location. Uh, is it Clay or Clayton County? Um, but it's where Carlisle Lake is. Um, oh. And there's an, there's an active restoration program there. Um, and, you know, 50 years ago, this was a fairly widespread species, but today it's only found in that single county, um, well-studied, well-protected on protected land. Um, and so you have almost zero chance of encountering that species. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, you know, in Southern Illinois, south of Carbondale, you have a pretty, you know, you, it's, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if you encountered a copperhead. Um, and if you were south of Carbondale, closer to the uh, Mississippi, it wouldn't surprise me if you encountered a cottonmouth. They can be very numerous in some areas. Like if you go to, um, you know, any of the cypress swamps, you know, there's going to be cottonmouths around there, or which, which is synonymous with water moccasin. Um, sorry. So if I go back and forth. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then our, our big rattlesnake, the timber rattlesnake, used to be really widespread and occur all along the Mississippi from Southern Illinois, all the way up to the border of Wisconsin, and then even a little up the Illinois River. Um, today, you'd be hard pressed to find it anywhere except the northwesternmost county in Illinois at a single protected preserve that is close to the public, um, or you, you'll find them in Shawnee National Forest closer to the, to the Mississippi on the bluffs areas. Um, but other than that, you know, you're, you're very unlikely to encounter a venomous snake in, in most of Illinois if you're in corn country. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, that's good to know, because I am. There's a cornfield in my backyard. <laughs> that's not to say it can't happen, right? So, you know, a snake could hitch a ride on a, uh, you know, maybe got stuck in a hay bale or mm -hmm. uh, uh, went up on a barge or something like that. But in, in herpetology, we use like the parsimony principle a lot. And so often, you know, the... Uh, the simplest explanation is, is the most likely explanation yes. in, in lieu of other evidence. Um, and so often it's going to be a, a snake that is harmless to humans. So you mentioned earlier that you could, there's really no easy way to tell venomous between non-venomous. So you, stuff, you see stuff on you know, social media and stuff, you know, look at the eyes, venomous or have like slit pupils or is non-venomous or more circular and fork tongue, non-fork tongue. So that's not, that's not true. Yeah, there, a lot of those rhymes may work in some situations in, uh, in some specific geog uh, geographic regions or, uh, and, and with some degree of experience to the user. So, so there are maybe some dichotomous uh, characteristics that I would be able to use as a herpetologist, um, such as looking at one of the scales on the, you know, where the tail meets the body, if it's divided or not. Um, but, you know, unless you're a herpetologist who knows exactly which scale to look at, you know, whether or not it's divided or not is not something that is useful to most people. Uh, and similarly, people will say, well, yeah, the cat eyes, if, if, you know, the pupils are vertical or if they're round, that's venomous or not venomous. Um, and that's not something you can really trust um, because you can, you, there are pictures out there you can also find that show a copperhead with 
which you know typically have more vertical pupils. Um, but you know, if it's a really low light condition, you know, those pupil shape is going to change just like any other animal. Um, and the other one you hear is the triangular head. Um, and that's not really a great characteristic to use either because almost all snakes can flatten their head. They have a very, um, their skull is, is very uh, flexible. And so almost all snakes will defensively flatten their head to look a little bigger. Um, and so that kind of throws that characteristic out of the way. Um, really, I mean, what that does a lot of times is it, it, it makes a lot of harmless garter snakes get killed. Um, and whether or not that's a good thing is, you know, a matter of perspective. If, if you'd rather be cautious than not cautious and you say, well, it doesn't really matter if I accidentally killed a, you know, a harmless garter snake, at least, uh, you know, I didn't err on the side of the wrong way. And it, and it was, uh, you're, you're mistaking a non-venomous snake for a venomous snake, but it almost never goes that way. <laughs> <laughs> so the other, the other thing people will say is that, you know, well, if the snake was floating on top of the water um, or swimming underneath the water, then it's either a cottonmouth or a water moccasin or not. And, and that's just really something that doesn't happen. You know, maybe water moccasins are more likely to float on top of the water, um, but it's certainly not anything diagnostic that I would say, oh, that snake is floating in the water. Let me grab it. I know it's safe or not. Uh, or I should shoot it or not because, I, you know, I'm a person who kills water moccasins, but not water snakes. Um, so that's, that's never something that's diagnostic either, but you'll hear that often. And, and I hear the argument also, like, for the most part, you know, snakes, they don't carry disease. They're not, they're not going to hurt us, really. I mean, yes, there's venomous ones, but they're, I mean, most snakes you encounter are not going to hurt you. But the things that they help control are damaging. And like rodents do carry human pathogens. And so, yeah, it's, I hear that argument uh, a couple of times from, you know, a few different sources. And it's like, that makes sense to try to preserve some snakes in your own yard. So yeah, we'll get in the snakes in the yard here in a second too. So, so we had a few pictures um, submitted to us and uh, would you be able to identify the snake that's hanging out in the tree? So um, I have my hunch is what I think this is. And so, you know, I would be fairly comfortable saying this is probably a rat snake with, with some assumptions, right? So assuming it was taken, in Illinois, um, then, then the way my brain works, I go through and I say, well, which species are likely to be in a tree and which species are not likely to be in a tree. And I can, you know, I can see this was up, you know, quite a, quite a bit. Um, it's not like this is a low shrub. Um, and so in, in Illinois, the species that you're most likely to encounter in a tree, it are really just the Eastern rat snake or, or versions of the rat snake, their taxonomy is kind of in flux right now. So, um, I guess what people would call a black rat snake or a rat snake, or maybe if you're in a really rural area, a chicken snake. Um, the other option would be um, a rough green snake. And that snake is green and about the width mm -hmm. of a pencil. And so I'm pretty certain this is not a rough green snake. Uh, and then occasionally you'll find um, other species in trees, but, but those are really the two arboreal species that you'll find. And so um, rat snakes tend to have a lighter belly with a darker top when they're adults. And that's what I see in this picture. Um, and, uh, just kind of my general impression of its size and shape and, and where this picture is taken, uh, makes me think that it, it's probably a rat snake. Um, but I, I think there's, there's this, um, th there's a group of people online who are probably more confident in their 
identifications of photos out of context uh, than, than I like to, to get into. But mm-hmm. if, if I had to, you know, if I was betting, I would say this is probably a rat snake. Um, but, you know, it's hard to say without more details and a, and a different angle. But I, I would be very confident calling that a rat snake. Yeah. And if we can get the copyright release, uh, we will post that picture along with this uh, podcast recording as well. So, uh, yeah, we just got to see if we can get that from that person. So right, we, we have a series. Actually, these next couple of pictures here um, are from Macomb, Illinois. And pictured here is actually a cluster of snakes. Um, so there looks like they're in this tree uh, and just kind of for a sense of scale here, that's the tree itself surrounded by, by water in this pond. Um, yeah, and this one right here. And then I guess they also got a picture of one taking off. Um, what do you think, John? What I think, what were their questions here? I think it was, what are they, what are they doing in this tree? And are they going to eat the baby geese that are also on this pond? <laughs> Yeah, so, so this is a photo where there's a lot of context and the location helps. And, and so I can say for certain these are common water snakes. So what I would call Nerodia cipidon. Um, this is a species that occurs pretty widely in, in Illinois. Depending on where you are, there's different subspecies, which I guess is kind of similar to the different cultivars you might have botanically, right? Uh, or varieties. Um, and so depending on where you are, it's either a northern water snake or a midland water snake. Mm-hmm but kind of the generic name for this species is the common water snake. Um, And so this is a species that is very aquatic. It's completely tied to aquatic habitats. It's a habitat generalist. It's not harmful to people. So, um, you know, people get bit by water snakes because they are not shy to defend themselves. And they'll follow, uh, if you're fishing, you know, they might try to steal Mm -hmm. the bluegill off your hook, Um, but they're not gonna come after you. if you are bitten by one of these, the, the closest, and I've been bitten by many, many, many of them. I have no scars from them. Their, their teeth are very little. Um, but what it really feels like is if you're not paying attention and you, uh, your hand brushes against a, you know, a, a patch of rubus or briar, and you know, you're like, ah, that hurts and stings a little bit. And then you might have a little poke blood. Um, that's about the extent of, of a bite from this species. Um, you and the way you would treat that is any other minor, minor wound. Maybe you wash it, or I would wash it off. Maybe put a little uh, triple antibiotic ointment on it and a Band-Aid. Uh, or if you, you do what I do is nothing <laughs> and then eat lunch <laughs> anyway. Um, so, so what we saw here, though, is, is what people would commonly refer to as a nest of water moccasins. Uh, and, and this is what people see all the time. And they'll swear they saw, you know, that breeding ball or a nest. Um, but really what this is, is, is a single large female and what looks like maybe two or three additional males. So the females are about twice the size of the males. Um, and that's beneficial for them because the larger they are, the more young they have. Um, this species gives birth to live young. They're not laying eggs. Um, and so larger females produce more young. They can eat larger food and carry more fat. Um, the males don't need to be nearly as large. Um, and they'll, they'll be attracted to those females. They'll use their sense of smell, which is really excellent. So snakes have that forked tongue, right? And so what snakes can do is um, as they go along, they'll kind of go in a, in a zigzag pattern. And if, they, if their tongue picks up odor particles on the left fork of their tongue, you know, they, they kind of go that way. And then if they sense it on the right-hand side or the right fork of their tongue, they'll go that way. 
And then by zigzagging, they can kind of triangulate and, and follow an odor trail. Um, and so what that's what these males did. They followed the odor trail. They found the female and they're waiting for their chance to mate. Um, and they'll just hang out on top of her. Um, and uh, then they, they might even start some fights over a fish if she pulls in a nice bluegill or a little uh, bullhead. Uh, you know, they might fight over it or try to take it from her, but uh, she'll probably be the victor in that in that battle since she's so much larger. Um, yeah, this is a very classic and uh, typical thing that people will find on limbs overhanging water um, in, in the spring. And that's just what this is. It's a, it's a female common water snake with a couple of suitors. Um, and it's what people misidentify as a breeding ball or nest of cottonmouths everywhere. You, you won't see something like this with cotton mouse. In cotton mouse, the males are actually a little larger than the females and they'll even battle each other. They're kind of somewhat territorial. Um, and um, you don't see this, this size difference. Um, and so you, I, I've never seen a picture of a, a group of cotton mouths or water moccasins like this. It's almost always every single time a group of harmless common water snakes that um, you know, also don't steal game fish. People love to think that they steal game fish um, mm -hmm. or trout or, uh, you know, but what they're really doing is they're, uh, they're foraging on smaller species and, you know, maybe injured species. They're attracted to those fish that are injured on a hook. Maybe they're bleeding because they, you know, got a, um, a foul snag on a gill or something like that. Uh, they'll take healthy fish, but, you know, snakes don't need to eat nearly as often as mammals. And, and they're just, you know, unless you have a thousand snakes on your little catfish pond, you know, they're, they're not going to be hurting game fish populations. They're a really great species. I, a lot of herpetologists love this species and I'm one of them. They're just, they have a lot of attitude. I, I and I would get in trouble because the people around this pond, they're like, are they going to eat the baby geese? Are they, are the baby geese at risk of consumption? I mean, there's a lot of things that will eat a baby goose. So yeah. And, and, Northern or common water snakes are not one of them. So okay. this, this species is, is overwhelmingly a, a fish and frog eater. And so, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll take those bullfrogs or green frogs off the shore and, mm -hmm. you know, they'll eat those little medium-sized bluegills from your ponds that are, you know, maybe poorly managed and, and don't have enough predators in them. And so you have a bunch of stunted bluegills, uh, but they're going to leave a baby goose alone. So the, the person who asked that question can rest easy. Well, very good. So you've hinted at this a little bit, but we've heard about um, declines in a lot of different types of wildlife populations. Um, what about snakes? Are they kind of fall into that category as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there are some areas where some species are, are doing well or maybe have increased in numbers recently. Um, but, but the overwhelming trend for snakes across the country is decline. Um, and just like other species, that is, you know, habitat loss is the number one reason for that. Um, snakes also have to contend with what we, we call wanton destruction, right? Which is where everyone knows someone who has killed a snake, right? Um, and most of those snakes are harmless species that, you know, pose no threat to humans. Um, and, and certainly lots of venomous snakes are also subject to that. Um, in, in some places, it's culturally acceptable. In some places, it's culturally uh, frowned upon to not kill a snake. Uh, that you you turn across, and uh, that's that's certainly led to declines in in certain species. Um, but habitat loss is the main one. You know, we lost, like I said, ninety nine percent of our prairies, ninety five percent of our native wetlands across Illinois. 
Uh, and cornfields and soybean fields are just not good snake habitat. Um, certain species might be able to take advantage of the resources that those fields attract, you know, if they're during this time where there's corn on the ground and there's going to be mice and things like that in those fields, then some species of snakes might be able to take advantage of that. But, but overall, you know, there's, there's not enough, even those cornfields and, and soybean fields don't really, uh, produce enough grain to keep rodent populations year round, right? It's that seasonal pulse in those populations of, of critters. Um, so that, that's just a huge problem for snakes. And then there's also emerging diseases that you're, you've probably heard are in, impacting other species, um, whether it's birds, like um, some of the finches. I heard one of your previous guests talk about, you know, those diseases at bird feeders. Um, bats, people are aware a lot of these days of the fungal pathogen that's really taken a toll on bat populations. Um, and snakes have a similar pathogen that's kind of spreading. It's called snake fungal disease. Um, and it's this a fungal pathogen that basically eats the skin of the snake. And so um, it's a huge threat to our remaining Massasauga population. Um, but there are some great vets at the U of I that are working on treatments and, and preventative measures. Um, it's an uphill battle though. But yeah, snake, snake populations are declining almost everywhere uh, or have declined. Um, and Snakes are not really that great at reclaiming lost territory just by their nature. They don't necessarily have large home ranges. They don't, they're not territorial. So they don't, you know, the mom doesn't kick the babies out and say, go find an, an unoccupied territory. Uh, so once snakes are gone from a location, it's hard for them to get back. Um, and they, they need the help of human conservation efforts to do that. So we'll see that up in Chicago. Um, the Peggy Notabert Nature Museum is doing some great work um, raising smooth green snakes, which used to be fairly common in the Chicago area, um, but have declined in a lot of areas. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a beautiful restored tall grass prairie that people have put 10, 20, 30 years into managing. They added prescribed fire back to the landscape. They added bison grazing. You know, they added, you know, they're carefully managing for native plants. And it's great snake habitat but it's surrounded by highway on all sides. You know, the snake isn't going to be able to get there. And so they need help from humans for that. Yeah. Now, if we wanted to discourage snakes from coming into our yard, are there things that we can do for that? Um, some of the things like do repellents work? How about mothballs? And then there's been suggestions too about using lava rock to dis discourage snakes. Yeah, those are really common questions. Um, almost every study that's been conducted on this shows that none of those uh, uh, kind of repellents work. Um, I've never seen any scientific studies done on the lava rock. I did some research ahead of time. Uh, I know there are studies that show that mothballs don't work. Um, really, your best bet is to keep your, your yard manicured um, and to remove debris from around your house. So if you have piles of tin, um, keep those as far away from your house as possible. Um, if you have a nice, you know, a nice log pile, keep that away from where, um, you, your kids are playing. Um, but other than that, keeping your yard neat and tidy is really all you can do. Um, you can, there are some, depending on how much work you, you want to put in, you can do things like fencing. So if you're going to try to fence out snakes, you can use quarter inch or smaller, um, chicken wire to fill any gaps in your fences, um, go all the way down. Snakes can fit through little tiny holes. Um, and same thing, you can, you can keep snakes out of your chicken coop pretty easily with, you know, effective use of quarter inch or smaller chicken wire, but that big stuff, you know, then they can still get through. So 
as small as as small as you can you can get those holes in your chicken wire you're the better off you are so if you're an outlier like me or, or you <laughs> well what can we do to encourage snakes in our yard yeah so the, so the opposite of that right so you're going to want to maybe turn your lawn into a, a native planting um you can you can strategically place debris that your neighbors won't like <laughs> or, or you know you, you can kind of foster connectivity to to natural areas if you're in the position to do that you know if your property abuts to a na natural area or you have a a, a group of like-minded neighbors you can try to try to do that um a lot of people will ask you know well can i can i bring these beneficial species and put them in my yard uh, and that really doesn't work so well. Snakes have a, a pretty well-defined home range. And once you move them out of that, they're going to try to get back to where they came from. And if that means crossing a road, that means they're, they're going to cross that road the opposite way and uh, try to get home and are, they're going to get smashed by a car. Um, so people ask, well, you know, can I bring king snakes into my yard? Because king snakes like to eat other species of snakes, including rattlesnakes and cotton or copperheads. Um, but again, that's, it's, they're not going to stay in your yard. They're going to try to get back home. Um, you can certainly, you know, probably one of the best things you can do is to try to uh, help your neighbors have an appreciation for snakes. So at least they're not killing them. Maybe they call you instead and then you can uh, come and remove them. So there, there are two species that I always like to tell people are, are the friend of the gardener. And I feel people on this show might appreciate that. So they're um, these small species, they're, they only get about 15, 18 inches long. Uh, and one of them is the, the brown snake. Um, and this is a species that loves to eat slugs. And so they eat worms and slugs. And so uh, I always tell people when I'm doing education programs, if you find a brown snake in your garden, you know, that's, you know, that's what you want there because you're, you're, what is it? Is it zucchinis and things that like that slugs like to eat? Um, yeah. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So Brown snakes are great to encourage in your backyard by, you know, putting some logs, you know, developing those connected areas. Um, and the other species is the red-bellied snake, which also only gets about 15 inches long. It has a bright red belly, um, about the width of a pencil, and that eats slugs and snails. They'll actually pull snails right out of their shell. Um, and so if you have either of those species in your backyard, you know, those are things you certainly don't want to kill. I, I mean, I endorse never killing a snake, <laughs> um, but, but I'm a practical person and I realize that not everyone is going to share that sentiment. Um, but so you should be proud and you should brag to your gardening groups that you have red-bellied snakes and brown snakes in your garden um, because they're going to be fighting those slugs and snails right alongside with you. They're in the trenches. Um, and a lot of the other species, you know, I, I have small kids, so I wouldn't necessarily want a copperhead hanging out in my yard. And so if, if that was the situation, I would, I would take measures, including fencing and keeping my yard up to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but if I saw one, uh, you know, I'm a trained expert. I've worked professionally with venomous species. I would move it to the outskirts of my property. And, I, you know, I'd have a talk with my kids about how we don't pick up snakes and approach them without a grown-up. And I, I'd go for that angle. Um, if you kill that copperhead, you've removed the immediate threat, perhaps. But if you have a copperhead in your yard, that means there's a population of copperheads in your immediate area. And so removing one hasn't really done anything other than make you yeah. feel better uh, temporarily. <laughs> uh, and, but most of the other species are great to have also, if you have garter snakes, you know, they might take small rodents. If you have mo any of the black snakes, which is a common name people use for rat snakes and racers, um, those species love to eat mice and voles. 
Um, king snakes love to eat voles. And um, uh, lots, lots of our larger species, the prairie king snakes and our fox snakes, they're all great rodent eaters. And, you know, if a snake is eating a rodent a week, that's a, that's a, for a single snake, that's a big difference when you think about the reproductive potential of these rodent species. Um, and so I, I would always say snakes are great to have in your garden, um, you know, and, and maybe do what you can to, uh, to minimize the chance you have a venomous species in your backyard, but that's not too common unless you're in extreme Southern Illinois. Uh, so you had given us some suggestions on some snakes that might control like voles in our smaller rodents. What, what about killing something like larger, like a rabbit? Um, in Illinois, there are very few species that would, you know, take down an adult rabbit. Um, rat snakes and fox snakes and bull snakes would certainly take baby rabbits if they stumbled across the nest. Um, but, but that's about it. So there, we don't have any species large enough to even think about controlling rabbit populations. Now, if you were in Florida, where there are Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes or indigo snakes or things like that, that's another story. Um, but, but Eastern cottontails, or uh, they're too big for most of our, at least the adults are too big for most of our, our snakes here in Illinois. Or like in Quincy, a python escapes someone's home and out into the wild. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, like <laughs> what happens in that situation? Will it survive? Uh, it'll almost certainly not survive the winter. Um, so uh, most people are aware there's, there's a population of invasive pythons in the Everglades. Uh, and that was, you know, that was a very uh, unfortunate situation because it's a species that can handle that extreme Southern Florida temperature. Um, and a good proportion of them are killed every year when they have a late freeze. And as the population expands northward slowly. Um, but yeah, most, most of the exotic species are, are gonna, they're not gonna be able to survive, especially, you know, when most people have a pet snake, it's, it's you know, it's fed these lab rats or mice and it has no exercise and no fear of predators anymore because it's habituated. Um, and very few instances of pet snakes surviving winters. Um, most perish pretty quickly or get hit by cars. Yeah, you mentioned that attitude before. I had worked with someone who had a pet snake who was actually fearful of the, um, I think, uh, the, the rats and the mice that they were fed. Uh, I don't know if maybe it was attacked in the past by one, but they have these personalities, it seems like. It's kind of interesting about, I never thought about, you think snakes, cold-blooded, it's just a killer. But it's, it's, they got personality. Oh, yeah. There, there are snakes that absolutely recognize their owners, and you can, you know, basic training um, I think the reason why people don't really think of them as intelligent is because they lack eyelids. And so, uh, you know, they're not making eye contact. They're not looking at things the way, the way mammals do or the way even some lizards do. Um, but, but there are some very intelligent species of snakes out there. Uh, others not so bright. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yeah, they certainly uh, I, can have personalities. So speaking of indoor snakes, what about snakes that get inside that are not pets? Um, you know, we've had people call the extension office, at least here locally. Uh, someone said, I have a snake hanging off of my ceiling fan. Um, they were first wondering, why is it on my ceiling fan? How did it get there? And then of course, how do we stop, keep this from happening again? So there, <laughs> usually if, if you see a snake inside and you think, how the heck did that thing get there? It's almost mm -hmm. always a rat snake. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there's there's even a Facebook group called Rat Snakes in Predicaments. And it's just it's just <laughs> photos of people seeing rat snakes on ceiling fans or coming out of vents or in someone's car engine or uh, you know, climbing out of a bird nest. Um, and it's because these are it's an arboreal species, and so it has much greater access to people's homes than species that stay along the ground. Because most people, you know, we we don't want creepy crawlies coming into our house, and so you know, we have a nice concrete barrier, and we don't have very many holes <laughs> letting things come in from the ground level. But you know, we keep our windows open. We have attics with eaves and uh, vents up there, and so rat snakes are really great at getting into people's houses. Um, of, uh, somehow though, it never happens to herpetologists. I've never known a herpetologist who was Aww. like, oh, look, there's a rat snake in my house. <laughs> you know, it never seems to work out that way because that would be, that would be the best day of my life. Um, <laughs> never happens that way. Um, but so yeah, if you see a, a snake on a ceiling fan, it's either, you know, the person's pet from the apartment above you that made its way down hmm. or a rat snake that somehow got in there and is climbing because that's where they feel safe is off the ground. Um, in those situations, if you don't know what species it is, you know, any pest control company will come in or a certified, you know, animal nuisance control officer will come and easily remove a snake like that. Um, um, un un unless you're in areas where there are lots of venomous species, usually a snake in the house is, you know, pretty easy to take care of. Um, one of the simplest ways you know, assuming you're in an area where you don't think there's a chance it's a venomous species, so I don't want to recommend anyone ever, you know, do anything like that. Um, you can just put a five gallon bucket on top of it and wait for someone to come get it. Um, mm -hmm. That's usually uh, the easiest way to deal with a snake. Same way you would, you would get a spider out of your house, right? You put a jar on top, slide a piece of paper underneath it, you know, but scale it up. So five gallon bucket on top, slide a cutting board underneath and then put it outside. And then, you know, what we recommend for insects and things is just like caulk and seal cracks and crevices that basically all you can do, keep them out. hundred um, percent. A lot of snakes will try to get into people's uh, basements during the winter when they try to hibernate. Um, and so for that, it's a matter of finding, finding the crevices and sealing them up. So say you have a, you see a snake in your house, but it gets away. How do you flush it out? You really can't. <laughs> <laughs> There, there's all sorts of tips and tricks, mostly come from people, uh, you know, who's maybe their teenagers snake got out and they're trying to figure it out. So uh, growing up, I had snakes in, in the house that I wasn't supposed to have. And, uh, you know, some of the tricks are, you know, you put a heat lamp out and it'll come and, you know, find warmth. Um, I don't know how well that that works. Others are, you know, you put a mouse in a cage and hopefully it comes and tries to find it. Or uh, one of the things you can do is kind of sprinkle flour along all your door door entrances and then so you can try to at least narrow down what room it's in as you look to see where the flower was you know disturbed um but chances are if you see a snake once in your house you're probably not going to find it again it's going to either make its way down to the basement under a radiator uh or into the walls or <laughs> something like that um if you see a snake, you know, and you're worried about it escaping and you can't find it again, that's when I would call a professional. And sleep well that night. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that was a lot of great information all about snakes. Holy cow. I, I feel like we could keep talking, John, but um, yeah, we're going to have to cut this off and, and save this for the this, this, uh, second show. So um, I really appreciate you being here today. And so if folks have questions or they want to get in touch with you, what is a good way to do that? Uh, sure. You can, um, you can, if you, I'd be happy if you send me an email at um, John P. at gmail.com, send me a photo of a snake and, you know, where you found it. 
because remember that geographic location is super important. Uh, any details? And, and I'd be happy to try to help you figure out what kind of species it was. Um, or you could reach me on Twitter, uh, which is at wild underscore ecology. Um, and then you can also just kind of Google my name. And uh, I have a, you know, academic website, which has boring stuff on it. Well, we can definitely link to that <laughs> academic website with boring stuff, but I, I bet there's some exciting things on there too. So uh, Dr. John uh, Van Eck, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I don't think we mentioned you're with uh, Northern Illinois University up in DeKalb. So yeah, I want to make sure we get that plug in there for them. So uh, come up and take some, uh, uh, learn from John. And, and yeah, this, is, this was a lot of fun. So thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks goes out to our co-hosts uh, with us every single day. Thank you, Katie and Ken. Yeah, thank you, John and Ken and Chris. It's good to, good to see you this week. Yes, thank you, John. And as always, thank you, Chris and Katie. Let's do this again next week. Oh, we shall do this again next week. We're going to be talking with Martha Smith, and she's retiring after so many years of being on the job with Extension. So, um, we're going to be talking to Smorgasbord with Martha, all, everything, uh, anything she wants to talk about. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to just, we're, we're going to lay everything out there. Um, she's, I mean, she has nothing to lose anymore. So it's just going to be a wild show. Um, so, well, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best. And that is listening, or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.